I think this last weekend was a first for me. I got to play a gig at Wigwam Village in Cave City, Kentucky. And uh, what it is, it's just a classic American roadside attraction. It's a hotel where all of the rooms are shaped like teepees. It's just a beautiful thing to see. I think it was built in the 1920s and hasn't really changed much since then. But I was contacted a few months ago by a guy named Jay Johnson who lives in Streetsboro, Ohio. And uh, he invites artists to come play in his home and he has a house concert series. And I'd played it once before, but he asked me, he said that he wanted to rent out every room in this wigwam village, have his friends come down and stay in these wigwams and asked if I would come play for them. And I said, sure. So that happened this weekend. And it was a really small crowd, you know, just a private thing. And I had some friends come down from Indianapolis who got to hang out. And afterwards, I slept in a wigwam. It's not the first time I'd stayed there, but it was an awful good time. And the next morning, we had campfire pancakes. And if you're curious what this looks like, I made a video at Wigwam Village a few years ago. It's called Made to Break. And I shot a lot of stuff, so... If you look that up on YouTube, you can go ahead and uh, see what some uh, Wigwam Village looks like. I guess it was just one more of many strange stops that I've had along the roadside. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Tim O'Brien. Tim is a singer and a songwriter and a multi-instrumentalist who lives right here in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about Tim at timobrien.net. We had a great response last week from uh, part one of the conversation with Tim. So thank you guys for sending those emails and comments. We got a lot to cover this week, so we're going to jump right back into it. We'll go right back to Tim O'Brien's kitchen. Here's part two of Tim O'Brien. We got to hang around. You know, I got to meet and, and hang around with Doc Watson a fair amount. I still, you know, study him to this day. But the, the contemporaries, like, well... Jethro Burns, that was another one. I remember my wife uh, met, we had our newborn son, Jackson, who's now 31, brought him there to the concert. It was David Grisman and um, uh, Jethro Burns was opening and playing with them. And she met him and she said, man, it's nice to meet David Grisman, but Jethro Burns, I saw him on TV. She was really excited about that. And I loved his playing. And he he became a nice, a good friend and um, but the contemporary guys that I'm still hanging out with, you know, Grisman, Sam Bush, those guys, they were, they're still my, they're still my peers. Uh, you know, I looked up to them and I still do, but we're side by side now and, um, it's kind of a wonderful thing, but 
those years meeting all those people was very heady. You didn't, you know, you're kind of climbing up into their world, but you don't realize that you're a part of the same world. You know, you, you're kind of uh, timid and you're kind of uh, shy and, and unsure of yourself. And then all of a sudden you're kind of sharing the same bills and sometimes you're playing after them and it's kind of weird. Um, but luckily they're still all good friends of mine. Do you have any Jimmy Martin stories? Or? Well, Jimmy Martin, uh, not too much. Uh, one, one was um, he liked to, uh, he just liked to talk, you know. And I, I know uh, one, <laughs> I kind of got, he was just rowdy. He was at, his concession stand was right beside ours. And I was, I was just hanging out. And he was just talking, 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 talking. And I got tired of listening to him talking. He was talking about something. And I got up to leave. And I wasn't, he wasn't even addressing me. He was addressing somebody else. But I got up to leave, and he, he kind of got my shoulder and pushed me back down. He said, you need to listen to the rest of this. You need to listen to the rest of this. But uh, he was wild. He was really wild. And uh, I remember Pete Wernick hired uh, a friend who – a friend had a gorilla suit. He hired this guy to come up with a gorilla suit and ask for a going ape over you during the show. And he, he, for a minute there, he didn't know what to say. He really was dumbfounded. And, uh, but yeah, he was, he was so colorful and so exciting. I guess the biggest, the best story I can tell you is at Earl Scruggs's, Earl and Louise Scruggs's 50th anniversary. I mean, here I am in Nashville and I've gotten to record with Earl Scruggs. And by this point, this is about maybe 10, 15 years, 10 years ago, maybe. And uh, all these bluegrass people are there, you know, all the old first-generation guys that are still around, not Ralph Stanley, but all the Nashville guys. And uh, there was a jam session on stage, and, and he kept asking Gary Scruggs, he said, now when you introduce me, tell, say this. And he said, I'm not introducing anybody. We're just having a jam. If you want to get up and jam, fine. He got up there, and there was only one mic, and it was on a, on a low stand, and we were all sitting down in chairs. Well, he came up behind me, and he said, bring it. Get that mic up higher. And I said, well, uh, okay. And I got it up as high. He said, higher. And I said, well, that's as high as it goes. And I said, I just ended up holding it up for him. I'm sitting in front in a half circle of chairs, and he's right behind me. And I'm look, and it later, and he made some weird statement about the Scruggses. He meant to say something like, before, because Gibson threw at the party. They paid for the party. And Gibson, he said, what he meant to say was, before Earl Scruggs got with Gibson, Gibson wasn't that much of a company. That's what he meant to say. But what he ended up saying was, before he got with Gibson, he wasn't much, Ooh. and it was bad. And I'm <laughs> and I, I'm standing there, and I'm I'm sitting there in front of him, afraid to move. And he, I'm looking through the tuners of his his headstocks in front of my face, and I'm afraid one for one thing, he's going to whip it back and you know, bean me. But I don't want to do anything. I'm afraid of him, you know. <laughs> And I'm looking through the tuners at Earl and Louise, looking at him, thinking, and they're kind of looking at him, and they're very stone-faced people anyway. But, you know, you could sort of imagine them thinking, what, I hope he doesn't say something's really stupid, you know. <laughs> and uh, they didn't, uh, they liked Jimmy Martin okay, but they, I don't think they wanted to tolerate him too much. I was amazed that he was there. I shouldn't be talking about this too much, but it was really interesting looking through his tuners at the Scruggs is looking at him and wondering what he's going to say next, you know? <laughs> and uh, he played a few songs and then got out of there. It was great, though. It was Martin. And I went to see him. Um, 
I'm never I'm sure who it was. Ronnie McCurry and and I went to see him in his kind of his last weeks at the hospital, and he was pretty. It was pretty sad. I mean, he was just really diminished. But he was making jokes. You know, he still had his humor. Well, I got to record with Ralph, and um, we were um, we recorded for his some kind of. And it wasn't Saturday night, Sunday morning. It was one of those compilations where he had a whole bunch of guests, and Bob Dylan had been by there. He had played, but you know, was uh, Ralph is he's another enigma. We had um, I, I really love his music, and it was great to record with him. But I think the cooler thing was getting. Uh, Curly Ray Klein to sit in with Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers. He was the longtime fiddle player for Ralph, a great entertainer. And he wouldn't do it for a long time. And it, and it was like uh, we found out he he didn't think Ralph would like it if he was playing with somebody else, you know. And uh, he must have told Ralph that we, he'd, we'd asked him a couple times. And we were at Merlefest, and it was actually, I think, the last, we did our last shows as a full-time group at Merlefest, uh, in 1990, and I think that particular time, one, we had two days there at Merle Fest, uh, and I think on the main stage the first time, we got Curly Ray out there, and he he wore a red bandana on his head, and he didn't go, usually the uh, anybody sitting in with a trailblazer would have a different name than a normal name. They'd kind of be in disguise, and it was part of the joke, but he didn't need to have another name. He was just Curly Ray, and... <laughs> he just got out there and did his thing and uh, he played great fiddle and we played country music and he played exactly the right thing and it was wonderful but you know it was a spectacle to have him because those guys wouldn't be they wouldn't just jam indiscriminately with anybody they were it was very much you know you work for your guy and you don't go outside of that because it it diminishes their impact John Williams said the same thing I, I, I had played a bunch with uh when I was starting solo, I I had a had been playing with Dave Pomeroy playing the bass, but he was playing with Don Gip, Don Williams a lot. So we were on the same bill, and I said, "Well, can you play with me?" And he said, "I'll ask. I think probably it'll probably be fine." So he he said, "I just need to run it by Don." Well, Don said, "Nah." He said, "He said why?" I said, "Well, it's not like people don't notice you up there. I, I want you. To, I want my band to look like my band. I don't want it to be you know somebody who's played right before." I understand that now. Is that an old school band leader approach? Or does I think that still so. Exist? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm a little embarrassed. Like I'm playing at Rocky Grass. I got four different sets this coming weekend, and um, sometimes I feel like telling, you know, calling up the promoter and saying, you know, are you sure? Is this a good thing? Because <laughs> doesn't it start to look like all the same band? <laughs> <laughs> and that was on Saturday. I played it. At Gray Fox in uh, up in New York State, and um, first I played my show with my band, and then then Jerry Douglas had his band, which is his Flat and Scruggs uh, repertory band, and then they wanted me to lead the jam, the All Star Jam at the night, and I said, "Well, who do you want to be on the All Star Jam?" And he said, "Well," and he named off three names, and these are guys who were already in my band. I said, "Well, that looks like my band. Who else can we get?" You know. They ended up spreading the sets out far enough apart, so I guess it would look different, but it's a little embarrassing. I mean, you get to the point where they want you on every show, and it's kind of I think it's kind of wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I'll probably be, I'm a little worried about uh, being in focus on all those shows this weekend. 
I mean, they're all really good projects. Two of them, I did a show with Jamie, Jamie Stone. Uh, we did a whole week where we worked up. Uh, there was five other, me and five other folks uh, working on uh, rearranging stuff that Alan Lomax recorded, rewriting or just reinterpreting or whatever, doing new arrangements or just kind of being inspired by it and seeing what happened. So we have this project. That's on Friday morning. Then I got my gig on Friday night. Then I got the Flatten Scruggs uh, Earls of Leicester, it's called, with with Jerry Douglas and the crew on Saturday night. And then Andy Stapman, I made a record with him. And Andy's another old hero. He plays really progressive music on his mandolin. Um, and I got to be the guitar player on his record that's coming out. And so he's doing a set. So it's four different, completely different things. And it's all really cool, but it's gonna it's a lot to remember. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It'd be nice to just sort of have your own identity and just maybe sometimes it seems like it'd be nicer to just be able to do your own thing and sort of concentrate on your you hone your presentation of what but me, I'm like I'm kind of a s I th- I've always thought I always wanted to be the guy that could do it all, you know, and so now I'm trying to. I find out what it's like when you when you get an opportunity to try to do it all. It's pretty it's pretty uh, intimidating. <laughs> well, I met Daryl Scott uh, because uh, I was writing for Forerunner Music. I had a publishing deal, you know, they're paying me a draw. And I'd come to Nashville and write, write with different people. So they set up the meeting between me and Daryl. He was writing for uh, EMI, I think, at the time. So I went over there, this place, and um, the guy from EMI, I can't remember who it was, he came and he said, well, just play Tim something. He, he maybe, you know, sing him a, he asked me to sing, he asked him to sing this song, Uncle Lloyd. So I listened to that song, and I went, I mean, he only had to play a few notes on the guitar. I go, gee, this guy can really play. And then he sang this song that he wrote, and I went, wow, that's like so wonderful and so so honest. And uh, singing his ass off, you know. So we wrote a song, and uh, that song, I recorded it later. And then we wrote some more songs. And um, when I made a, a record after that, I hired him to play the guitar on the whole thing. And then... Several months after that, I was going on a tour to England. I'd seen him. He was playing with Sam Bush at the time, but then he quit Sam's thing, and I was going to do this tour of England and Ireland and Scotland, and I said, do you want to... I, I thought maybe it nice, would be nice to have somebody go along that could open the show, and they could help drive, share expenses, whatever, you know, share duties. And so I asked him if he wanted to do that. And then with him, I said, well, maybe we play a little bit together too. So the idea, I was going to play a little on his set, he was going to play a little on my set. So we did a practice run of that, we, and we booked the concerts. We had like a three-week run. So we booked a gig at the Bluebird to just sort of do a shakedown, you know. And after that, you know, we played all these songs at the soundcheck that we knew in common just as a, on a lark, you know, Hank Williams songs and stuff like that, and um, it was really good. So then we started the tour, and after the second night, we just, or actually after the first night, we just, I just said, why don't we just play two sets together? He said, that'd be great. So that's what we did. And it didn't matter if we knew the songs or not. He'd just follow along, and I, I could usually follow his stuff. So it was uh, really exciting, you know. He's very explosive. His, his uh, performance style is just, he can go from a whisper to a roar and back, and um, 
he can play and he can sing and he doesn't he doesn't he'll do like the church kind of parallel harmony the kind of brothers duet kind of harmony but he can also do something like a rocker or like a blues thing where it's kind of counterpoint or i mean it's just he never it's all never the same from from uh, performance to performance and i like that I, I mean i've always i've always been turned on by that unpredictability and you know i like to think i can improvise i like to think, think that i can kind of keep making it new and he's he does that so well and um when we played we'd been playing for a year or so together i went and played in in uh, minneapolis as a place there with him and uh an old hero of mine came to see us and and he told his wife they were nodding to each other because they said looks like tim finally found somebody he can play with because it was like yeah <laughs> until that point you kind of hold back because you're kind of working with somebody who specializes in one direction you can't really do your you can't really let it all hang out but with him it's anything could happen and it would be all fine so uh writing with him is that way it's like there's a there's a sensibility he brings to it that that others don't he seems to intuit he seems to pull stuff out of a phrase that i didn't even really know was there you know he makes connections he's just you know he's he studied literature poetry in college and he tried to give up music and uh couldn't <laughs> <laughs> so i think it didn't hurt him any to go to school and learn that literature stuff but he's i think he's just naturally got that sense you know he just he's just one of the guys he's just one of the great writers you guys have a project you're working on yeah we have a record uh daryl and i have a record called memories and moments that's coming out in, in september and um we actually did a fundraiser we did a kickstarter campaign and we've we've got the money for it and we we also have a lot of good bookings coming in, and uh, it all seems to be uh, clicking even well before the release. It's like uh, he's he's much more hands-on with his career than he was at the time we made Real Time back in 1999 or whatever it was. He's much more, he's been aggressive and getting his own name out there, whereas at that time he was just kind of reluctant. He was kind of like... Uh, he had some studio stuff and songwriting stuff, and uh, a little solo was enough for him. He didn't really need to tour. And as a result, it was slow for him for a while, and the record labels were kind of uh, frustrated. And then he gradually got warmed up to you know touring a lot. So now, now for us to get back together, there's a lot of anticipation, and it seems like it's, it's going to work out pretty good. I'm real happy about the record. We had, you know, basically I've just pulled songs that we had written over the last year or so, and um, we wrote one together. We wrote one about mountaintop removal called Keep Your Dirty Lights On. And, uh, you know, kind of for the, from the perspective of a guy who who works it on a big machinery and blows up a mountain. And uh, as long as there's coal, you know, we're going to get at it and you're going to burn it, so we'll keep your lights on. Don't blame us, you know. You know, when you want to charge your iPhone, you know, you're all you're all using batteries and stuff. You still got to get it from a coal plant, probably. So it's good. We have we have a song. We have a version of John Prine's uh, Paradise, which is also kind of about that. Um, and we got him to sing and play on it. And uh, the rest of it, though, is just a, just the two of us. Is this the first time you've worked with Prine? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the first I've worked with John. And he was he was real, uh, real cooperative and real friendly and um 
just got in and hung out and, and talked and then got the mics going and guitars tuned up and it was easy to do. We were, he's got a studio that I've worked in a lot at, uh, the butcher shop. Dave Ferguson's the engineer. So I've, I've been working with Ferg a lot over the last several years. And so we, we just met over there. He took us in and showed, a, showed us his jukebox. And I didn't know he had his back room there with a jukebox and a pool table, snooker table and, uh, you know, toy, man toys, man cave. <laughs> <laughs> it's all stocked with Elvis and uh, Chuck Berry and Johnny Cash and Hank Williams. That's a lot of people's dream come true, getting to hang out in yeah. John Prine's man yeah. cave. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, Knopfler called me. Well, it was I got the word through my management that they that they were wanting me to fill in. It was a U.S. tour, five weeks, about three years ago now. And um, what it was is my friend John McCusker was playing fiddle and bazooki and some penny whistle stuff. And he was going to sit out the tour because his wife was due to have a ba- their first child. So uh, they called, and, I, and I, at first I saw, I, you know, I'd seen John do that gig at the Ryman with Knopfler, and I went, man, I really admire you because I couldn't do that gig. I couldn't be the sideman you are. I, I would get really frustrated. And uh, so they called, and they wanted me to fill in, and they had another guy filling in who I knew who was going to do the whistle part and play the bagpipes as well. So I said, well, that's kind of cool. And my manager, at first I thought, I don't think I could do that gig. And I'd have to change a lot of bookings I already got and cancel or whatever. And he said, you got to think about it. Think about it for a couple days. So then I thought, well, this is a chance where I've been running my own business for a lot of years. This is a chance where I'd get good pay and everything would be cushy, and all I got to do is play this music. Maybe I ought to try it. So I found out it was a lot harder to play that music than I than I had imagined, because uh, he's he's really exacting, and being a sideman is a whole other gig. Um, when you have the control that he has and the, the resources he has, you can fine-tune things, and I never realized how fine you could tune things. You know, he really he really was aware... And I and when I and actually the other thing is I saw the show um, with John McCusker and I'm going why does he even have these other guys? I mean most people want to hear him play the guitar and they know his songs they want him to sing those songs and uh, he had this eight piece band and I'm and I'm going geez I wonder why but it turns out I find out you know for the other thing the other thing that dawned on me was how great the material was I knew some of the songs from the radio. And I started listening to the lyrics of these songs, and I'm going, man, he can write about Ray Kroc, or he can write about a race car driver, or he can write about a, you know, a, a criminal. He can write about anything, and he write a beautiful song. And um, I was fascinated by the material, and it's kind of like folk. It was like folky melodies with a, you know, uh, big building to big rock and roll climaxes, and uh, so it was very cool. It's very. Uh, I learned a lot of discipline. You know, I got to record with him uh, this for this last record that came out, um, Privateers. He's a real gentleman, uh, real generous, but he's he knows he hears everything, and he wants it to be a certain way. And you have some leeway, some wiggle room, you know, creativity license in there. But mostly, you got to play it. You got to be ready. You got to be in tune. You got to be at the right place on the stage so the lights are right. You got to do this, that, and the other. 
you know, and that was the first time I worked with roadies where they're handing you guitars. I got to play some, you know, tre- uh, some uh, Telecaster with them, just doing some sort of this electric guitar part with a tremolo on, you know, and it was great fun. It was a real, real opportunity. Oh, I went to Amsterdam. Yeah, I went to Amsterdam and um, sampled the. Well, I went to the coffee shops. I didn't. I, I strolled around the sex market, but I didn't partake. But I definitely partaked, partook in the coffee shops wares. And then um, I think actually when I got, and I went on to Denmark, I think. And when I got to Denmark, I was really glad that I left everything behind because there was a dro- drug sniffing dog there. And he kept going after this one suitcase, and I kept thinking, I wonder if there's any residual smell on mine. But he didn't go after mine. I was really lucky. <laughs> I really felt really happy about that. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's funny the the drug culture and all that. Uh, you know, Colorado's now the Denver's the new Amsterdam. <laughs> it used to be New Amsterdam was New York. Now it's Denver. <laughs> was there a friction back when between the old school bluegrass guys and you know? Next crop. Yeah, you know, it's fairly tolerant, really. Uh, the hippies and the and the, the you know traditional bluegrass people had sort of made a sort of peace. I think by the time we started, it wasn't it wasn't um, so serious of a, a rift. I don't think. I remember at first in Colorado, I remember Dusty Dra- Dusty Drapes and the Dusters when they play some of these honky tonks. They were playing in rock clubs, but then they shifted to these country bars and um at first the hippies would go out and dance and there'd be fish fist fights you know they'd get after each other you know the rednecks versus the hippies and that sort of just kind of calmed down after a couple of years but yeah it's like um there was the counterculture versus the sort of traditional bluegrass culture was always is still there and uh and yet there's a sort of tolerant side to things i mean i tend to play the hippie style of festivals the tellurides are a lot different than the uh, somerville west virginia's and stuff but you know it's everybody's got something uh, i think at, at a music festival the sort of the barriers tend to go down and you don't you know you don't bother anybody but you know you don't need to bother them you don't need to bother them and they don't need to bother you i think it, everybody kind of tolerates one another pretty well yeah when i was a kid i Growing up in Indiana, my grandfather, who played bluegrass music, would take me down to Bean Blossom, uh-huh. to the festival there, and uh, you know, I get to see Bill Monroe as a kid and shake his hand and not really realize what an important figure he was, yeah. whatever. But um, did you ever play in Bean Blossom? Yeah, I played in Bean Blossom. I only played in Bean Blossom after Monroe was gone. Um, they they started a sort of, I think it was kind of a meant to be a different direction, and I got hired play that I can't, it wasn't the standard the one that's in father's day weekend or whatever that is that's that was when bill's festival was the uncle pin days in the fall uh no it was it was a little later in the in the year and uh later in the summer but it wasn't um fall and then in, in recent years i've been up there to play john hartford festival and that's a great event it's a beautiful site and um you know, the Bill Monroe, he started a lot of festivals. Uh, the one in Colorado that's now Rocky Grass, he started that as, through with the Colorado Bluegrass Music Society. And, uh, like, he had a talent agency, you know, and people call, we want to have a festival. And he'd say, well, great, I can book uh, Clyde Moody and James Monroe and uh, 
Jim and Jesse and um, the Lewis family on your festival, how would that be? Along with my, my own band, the Bluegrass Boys. And I say, okay, great. So the festivals, he did a lot of those festivals. And that was the first several years in Colorado. Um, and then they got tired of the lineup. They wanted to change the lineups to their own uh, devices. And different festival directors came forward. It was a volunteer thing. And it just kind of, it, it, it lost some oomph after a while. And um, it was really good that Planet Bluegrass picked it up because... The festivals, you know, you can start them, but the one thing that happened over the whole this whole time when I've been playing is that there used to be very few festivals, and now they're just everywhere. Every weekend there's several festivals, not just bluegrass festivals, all kinds of music festivals. And so there's more, much more competition, and people need to have, they need to be more inventive to get the crowd out. And so it's split into different kinds of events. I mean, that... That would be the only bluegrass festival in Colorado at the time um, for a while, and then now there's tons of them, and so some of them are progressive, some of them are real traditional, some of them are mostly local bands, some of them are only bigger bands, and, you know, just every style, each to his own kind of thing. Thank you for inviting me into your kitchen here. Sure, man. It's nice to see you here, and uh, come back. All right. (laughs) I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Tim for inviting me into his kitchen here in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about Tim at timobrien.net. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.